0: Amen and amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm 119. We'll pick up the reading in verse 89, and before we do, let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God and our Father, we come this evening Conscious of our need of Your help, O Lord, we are weak and poor and needy. We have no strength of our own, no wisdom of our own, O God, no light of our own. And we need the help of Your Holy Spirit, O God, to illumine our hearts and to lead us by the hand to the Lord Christ and to His Word, and grant us confidence, O God, in a day when everything seems uncertain, that you would help us and teach us where to find true and abiding certainty. And we offer these prayers, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 89, this is God's Word. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth, and it stands fast. By Your appointment they stand this day. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, uh, but the Word of God endures uh, forever. We live in a world of great scientific progress. When man's ability to predict things um, has grown to a level far beyond the imagination of our fathers, we can predict weather phenomena, we can predict earthquakes, we can predict volcanic eruptions and global warming, we try to predict the results of elections and many other things. And yet, there's so much that we can't predict. What will happen to us tomorrow? Perhaps you're a young person and you're here and you're thinking, you know, where am I I going to go to college? And after college, what am I going to do for a job? And who am I going to marry? How many children will I have? How long will I live? There are a thousand things that are um, unpredictable. And life's unpredictability can be a cause of great uh, anxiety, it can be painful not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, and if we think about that too much, we can find ourselves in a bit of a tailspin. And that shouldn't surprise us, of course. Even scientists will admit that at the very heart of reality, in the subatomic particles of physics, there is what they call the uncertainty principle, that when you look at particles, the subatomic particles, you can know their speed… Or you can know their location, but you can't know both things. The more you know about their speed, the less you know about their location, and the more you know about their location, the less you can figure out their speed. That's above and beyond my pay grade, but Heisenberg tells me it's true, and um, it's very confusing. And there's that level of uncertainty, right? And the great question that, that falls, befalls to us again and again in life is, where do you go to find certainty? Where do you go to find um, somewhere that something you can trust, that you can be sure of, that you can't doubt, right? That was Descartes' great problem, you remember, as he tried to figure out what can I do, where can I go to find certainty, and so he tried to doubt everything, And his doubt became an almost universal acid that kind of dissolved all the old certainties and eventually got down to the one last certainty that he felt he couldn't doubt, right, which was I'm the one doing the doubting, and his famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And we're indebted to Carl Truman, of course, who who takes that um, thought of Kant, or, um, Descartes, and shows how, you know, give man 400 years to, to learn enough stupidity, and I think, therefore I am, becomes I think I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, therefore I am a man. And everything unravels, and there is no certainty, and we have no foundation for life. And of course, if only our culture had read the Bible and the book of Proverbs Uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you don't begin with God, you can't have any true knowledge. You can't put your feet on a rock of certainty anywhere. You start your thinking process and then your living process with both feet firmly planted in midair, and we've said this before, but it's worth repeating. You know, you know, the the rationalist who trusts his own mind. Well, you ask him why does he believe anything? And he's a long kind of rational alphabet. I believe in A because of B and B because of C and C because of D and so forth. And eventually he gets to Z, the end of his rational alphabet, and you say, Well, why do you believe in Z? And he goes, I don't know, I just do, right? And if that Z at the end of your rational alphabet is not God, you have no ultimate principle of of certainty beyond, well, I just do, right? Uh, and only the Christian looking to God and listening to God has that ground of certainty that not that I think, therefore I am, but God is, therefore I am, and therefore everything else is too. And essentially, that is the lesson of tonight's Psalm. Where do you go for certainty? Where do you go when the world is topsy turvy? Where do you go when um, wicked men are out to get you? And that's the Sama situation. He's not a fair-weather sailor. He's not, you know, sitting in some armchair in a cabin somewhere um, pontificating on reality. He's saying to us, and he's saying to God, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. They're hiding somewhere. Like the psalmist in Psalm 11, the wicked have bent the bow to shoot at the upright in the darkness. They're there. The sniper hairs are on my head, and it's only a question of when are they going to jump out at me. But they're there. They're unprincipled. They're unrighteous. They're wicked people, and they're out to get me, and everything seems very uncertain. I can't see them, but they can see me. They're waiting. They're watching, and there's more than a little bit of my heart saying, I'm frightened they're going to get me. And in those situations, where can you go for certainty? And maybe for you it's not the wicked out to get you. Maybe it's cancer, Maybe it's the fear of Alzheimer's disease, or some other problem that's lurking in an unknown tomorrow, all of the what-ifs, all of them, what might happen tomorrow, which is often much harder to deal with, as I said in the Covenant of this week, I find the what-ifs much harder to deal with than the "what's happening right now." Um, what might happen is much more scary than what is happening very often. And the psalmist is there, and he's asking and telling us, where do you go to find certainty? And the answer, of course, is to go to God and to His Word. And as he works through this beautiful paragraph in Psalm 119, he's a number of things to say to us. First of all, he'll say, God's Word creates the arena of history. You can trust it. Secondly, he'll say, God's Word guides the course of history. And thirdly, you'll say God's word sustains his servants throughout history. And so the, 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 the way to find certainty is to root yourself on this book, to root your thinking on this book, your affections on this book, the, your hopes in this book. And if you learn to fear God, you will have nothing else to fear. Right? Let's work through the passage. First of all, the psalmist says, God's word creates the arena of history. And what I mean here is the illustration I suppose you might use is a video game. Uh, um, Most of you probably don't play video games, but you've seen people play video games. Maybe your children play video games. Mine do, and maybe they're playing a game which has a, 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 a virtual world in it, right, whether it's Minecraft or Call of Duty or whatever game it is, right, and there's a virtual world in it. And that virtual world can seem very real. There are, there are, there's the appearance of artificial intelligence as the people you're fighting against or playing against are there in this world, and there's trees, and there's valleys, and there's rivers, and there's mountains, and there's houses, and there's all kinds of things in this world, right? But that whole world um, depends every moment of its existence upon the power coming from the plug or the socket, and my mom walks into the room and finds Aaron Teenager playing Call of Duty for the, you know, I don't know, the 15th hour or whatever, and she says, son, I told you to stop playing that. I'm oh, in I I a minute, mommy. And she, she grabs the plug and pulls it out. And the moment she pulls the plug, the moment the socket leaves the wall, that virtual world, poof, it disappears. It kind of constricts into a little white spot in the middle of the VDU, and it's gone, and everything in it. And the psalmist is saying, you need to realize that's the way it is, not with just a video game, that's the way it is with all of the the universe in which you live. It is established by God's Word, and it exists by God's Word. Why is there something and not nothing? God has spoken. Why is there still something and not nothing? Because God continues to speak. Now, he's writing poetry, and it might not be immediately clear, but that's what he's saying. Let's work through the passage together. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is standing in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth, and it stands fast. Now, this is what the Hebrews would call parallelism, and he's saying the same thing in three different ways. Um, it's most clearly perhaps seen in the last of the three parallelisms. The earth is founded and is standing. Why? Because you have established it, right? You have, you, you have established the earth. You have made it stand, and it is standing. Why? Well, it goes back to verse 489, because God has spoken, and His Word is standing. It's like a tentpole holding up the created universe. It's the truth of Psalm um, 33. If you turn back in Psalm 33… In verse 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm." The same kind of idea that God has spoken and the universe stands firm, and it stands firm because it's supported by the tentpole of His Word that is forever standing in the heavens, stopping the heavens collapsing into the earth and the earth collapsing into nothing. Or it's the truth of, of Hebrews 1 when, um, if you turn there in your Bibles, and the, the writers describing the great Colossus of history, the Lord Christ, who represents God's final word to mankind and God's only answer to our sin. And you remember how how the writer to the Hebrews starts describing Jesus Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the Word of God, the the revelation. But in these last days, He has spoken to us literally in His Son, the climax of God's revelation. God could have spoken through nobody dearer. He speaks through His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. He could have spoken through nobody greater, He's the, the heir, the owner, the Lord of every second of time, every event of history, every personality of earth, of heaven, of hell. He owns it all. Through Him also He created the world. He could have spoken to us through nobody wiser. He designed the universe, great and small. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, what is God like? He is just like His Son, Jesus Christ. He could have spoken to us through nobody clearer. And then He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. He could have spoken to us through nobody stronger. His Word sustains, upholds the universe. It's an amazing thought as He's sitting, lying in the, in the arms of the Virgin Mary, and all He's able to do in His human nature is to suck at her breast and fill His diaper. And yet, in His divine nature, He's upholding the cosmos. And later upon the cross, when those Roman soldiers were kneeling over Him and nailing Him to the cross, He was sustaining the wood of the cross. He was sustaining the nails and the sledgehammer and the the arms and the muscles and the souls and the being and the life of the men nailing Him to the cross. He is sustaining them as they are immolating Him. And that's the picture the psalmist has. This God's Word is holding the universe. It's fixing them, upholding them, establishing them. And it stands because His Word stands in the heavens as a testament to the faithfulness of God that endures throughout all the generations. And so, the psalmist is saying, do you want someone to trust? Go to the God whose Word sustains the heavens. It's amazing. Look up at the stars and the moon and Venus and Mars and the night sky and sun, the sun during the day. And these are the same celestial bodies that shone their light upon Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and the apostle Paul and the apostle John and Patmos and Augustine, and Calvin, and Luther in the Reformation times, and Whitfield, in the Great Awakening, and before that our founding fathers, and Winston Churchill in, in England during the Second World War. And these same celestial bodies shine down upon us. Why? Because God's faithfulness is certain. His Word is powerful, and it's sustaining the course of history. We'll talk about the events of history in a moment, but there's a comfort to know that the very world you live in only has existence because of the God you worship. And so, you're never fighting on away turf. That was always the fear, wasn't it, of the pagans in the Old Testament. Their God might be the God of the sea, not the God of the mountain, or the God of the lowlands, not the highlands. And so, if you're going, if you're going away from your God's turf, you were kind of in trouble because you, you were in away territory. But wherever you stand, whatever troubles you face, whatever enemies oppose you, they're standing on the ground that God Himself sustains. And there's comfort to that, isn't there? Like Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my aid, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth and everything in between is the idea that whatever i face i face it in the realm of my father's world and my enemies must meet me on god's home turf so god's word he says creates and sustains the arena of history But he moves on. God's Word actually also guides the course of history, and you see that in the next verse. By your appointment, literally um, in the Hebrew, by your judgment. And the word judgment, mishpat in the Hebrew, remember, it's often translated in the ESV as rules, but it's it's not so much the rules of a commander commanding things to do, But it's the rules of the gubernator of the universe that issue forth from his throne with the flash of a will that can. He just wills it and speaks it, and it's done. He who does what he wants, where he wants it, and how he wants it done, by your appointment, they stand. The universe stands. The, the atoms of the created order stand this day. Why? For all things are your servants. In the course of history, there are many servants rational servants, accidental servants, volitional servants, evil servants, righteous servants, but there's only one master. All things are your servants. And that is the foundation of all true courage and all true confidence— that this is my Father's world. He sustains it, but He also governs it, and He rules it, and all things are His servants. As Pink said so beautifully, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is simply the doctrine of God, that God is God in fact as well as in name. He does as He pleases in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, "'What is this that you have done?' He works all things, Paul says, Ephesians 1, after the counsel of His will. You say, that's ridiculous. I mean, how can God work all things? I can't answer that question, but I can tell you God works all things. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 16, one beautiful chapter that just sums up so much of this um, history. Notice how the psalmist, the the proverb writer, begins thinking about volitional things. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying that in, in a certain sense your thoughts belong to you. You think in your heart. You're giving counsel to somebody. Um, You're planning what you're going to say. And the, the thoughts buzzing in your head belong to you. I'll give you that much. But what you actually say, whether it's wise or foolish, comes from God. Now, I can't tell you how that happens without violating your liberty and your personality and your agency. It doesn't. You really do think, and you really do take action, and you really do make decisions, and you decide what you're going to say. But what you actually say in a way that is, that is all of God and all of you at the same time is, is what God determined for you to say. The very words you respond. Belong to God. And if that's not what this verse is saying, please tell me. Or down in verse nine. The heart of man plans his way. He thinks, where am I going to go today? What, what am I going to do tomorrow? Who am I going to marry? What investments are, am I going to make? What jobs am I going to accept? What jobs am I going to reject? Which way am I going to go to work? The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is the one who is ultimately guiding, directing, governing his steps. So, the volitional things that we think and say and do are under the sovereign plan of God. All things are His servants. What about random things? Verse 33 The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even there you might say, well, that's, that's entirely random. I, maybe you've got a God who is sovereign over random things like a dice being thrown. What number comes up? But you can't believe in a God who actually has sovereign influence over the things you decide, right? And you think, no, no, that would violate my free will. But I can figure out that if I throw a dice, the number that comes up is God's. That's okay. God can be sovereign that far. But you think about throwing a dice. It's not entirely mindless, is it? The dice is mindless, but you throw it. You put it in your hand. You have some agency over the, the aspect of the dice in your hand just before you cast it. How hard you throw it? What angle you throw it at? How much rotation you put on the dice as you throw it? There's the humidity in the air. There's the gravitational, I don't know, something. And then there's also the frictional coexistence of the ground you're throwing it onto, and it bounces along the ground, whether you throw it onto the table or onto the carpet. All that affects the, all that affects, um, the outcome of the dice, and, and how high the dice is when you let it go. All of those things affect the actual outcome, but yet when you cast a dice onto the ground, Solomon says, occasionally God decides, what. Well, no, it's every decision is from the Lord. Well, okay, well, I, I, can, I can get God controlling good people, but what about bad people? Are, are they in His sovereignty? We'll look at earlier in the chapter. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. He has made them all. Even, remember, in Genesis 3 verse 1, as we're heading over the precipice into the fall, what does Moses say? The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. That what? The Lord God had made. Now, Moses isn't giving you all of the answer. He's just showing you a little bit of the slip, a little bit of the hem of the answer. Right? Um, But Moses, it's wonderful. You can trust that God is dishonest. We're, We're heading over the precipice. This is the root of every tear you ever shed, every loss you ever bear, every death you ever experience, your nearest, your dearest, then finally your own, all of the pain, all of the agony from a cut knee as a child through to cancer when you're older, everything in between. The tornadoes, the hurricanes, the the earthquake that that ripped Turkey apart um, last week. All find their root in this moment. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Where did he come from? The Lord God made him. Remember, the, 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 the theme of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything that He made. He speaks, it's done. He commands, it holds fast. There are no accidents. He doesn't make a whale and go, oh, <laughs> that was a bit of an accident. He's not like the Wuhan lab that makes a virus and releases it by accident Everything is purposeful, and the Lord God made the serpent. Now, God doesn't give you all of the answers in that moment, and the rest of the Bible is very clear. God is not the author or the approver of sin, but God handles it sinlessly as it works out His purpose. And before you think of, I can't, I'm can't. i not sure I can trust a God who allows evil into this world, remember that the God who allowed evil into His creation paid a very great price to remove evil from His creation. His Son becomes flesh, and then He becomes sin, and then He becomes cursed. God is no armchair general who sends other people's sons to die for decisions He makes. Like in the First World War, when the the generals of England went, oh, she know, we lost 40,000 boys yesterday. Let's send another 30,000 tomorrow over the, over, the, over the trench and see how they do against Jerry. It's like cricket. There's other people's boys they're sending to their death. But the sovereign God of heaven, for whom all things are His servants, He sends His own Son to die in the course of the history He has planned. And you can trust a God who's that honest, and you can trust a God who's that gracious. How does that work out? In, how does that work out? How does God's sovereignty over the decisions I make work out in practice? Well, it's not simple, but it's easy. First Kings twelve. I'm going the wrong direction. I don't even know where I am in the Bible. First Kings twelve. Um, Jeroboam went to Shechem, verse 1, a son of Solomon, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Jeroboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. In other words, as bad as taxes will be under the time of Mr. Biden, they're much worse under Solomon, and we're asking you, please, lower the taxes, make life easier. We're exhausted. We're tired. And Rehoboam said, go away for three days and then come again to me. So the people went away. Then Rehoboam took counsel with the old man who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? They said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. And that was good advice. But unfortunately, Rehoboam didn't have ears for good advice. Verse 8, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel from the young man who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now therefore Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And Rehoboam thought, I like the way that sounds. Now, we just decide, young people, if you reject sound wisdom, the devil will be totally happy to give you a thousand counselors to confirm your decision to do something stupid. So, Jeroboam, you tend to get what you want in this world. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Jeroboam the third day, as the king said, "Come to me again the third day." And the king answered, and the people harshly. Sorry, the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, "My father made your yoke heavy, and I, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." So the king did not listen to the people, and essentially it tears the the land in a very unequal half, right? Now, why did that happen? Well, it happened because Jeroboam was stupid. And you can educate ignorant, and you can medicate crazy, but there ain't no cure for stupid. And he was stupid. But why was he stupid? He, well, he was stupid because he was stupid. That, that's true. He was, and he's responsible for it. But also look at what the Bible says. For it was a turn of affairs, a turn of events, The Nasby says, Brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. A turn of affairs to fulfill the word of God. And God had said to Solomon, He would tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. And there's a thousand. Similar stories in the Bible that tell you that God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything. The words you say, the choices you make, even the mistakes and sins you commit. And yet the sin belongs only to you, but the purpose of God belongs to Him. So that you can say, with Paul, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, His ways past finding out, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And those prepositions are so important, from Him, everything, all the, all the events of history are His story it's not just that God knocks over the first domino and then watches the rest of them unfold, but actually He's there governing each domino as it falls, making sure that they fall in the right way, at the right time, in the right direction, and that no mouse sneaks into the domino show and knocks over half the dominoes and makes a mess of it all. He's controlling everything from Him and through Him. His fingerprints cover every detail of history. And to Him, they're directed towards His his um, sovereign purpose. His word guides the course of history. And so even the most wicked thing that ever happened when man took the Son of God and put him on a cross. Why did that happen? how did that happen Well Peter says, men of israel acts two twenty two hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, you knew who he was, you knew where he came from, Nicodemus said, you remember Teacher, you're a man come from God, and no one can do the things that you are doing unless God is with him. And we know that, Nicodemus said, at the beginning of his ministry. And you knew it, Peter said, here at Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Wasn't it God was going, I wonder how this is going to fall out? I mean, there's a number of possible outcomes here. Judas might repent, Pilate might actually make a wise decision for once, which would be interesting. And you know, who knows what's going to happen? No, His definite plan and foreknowledge. And it wasn't just that God cheated and read to the end of the story, and that's how He foreknew things. No, He foreknows the end from the beginning because He plans the end in the beginning. His definite plan. And yet, you crucified Him, and killed by the hands of lawless men. They were wicked, and you did it, and you're responsible for it, Peter says, and yet God is sovereign, and the two need no reconciliation. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, because friends need no reconciliation. And that's the universe, as the psalmist here faces real enemies intending him real harm He remembers their fighting on God's home turf. God's Word creates the arena of history, and God's Word directs the course of history. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. And then lastly... Not just does God's Word create the arena of history and God's Word guide the course of history, but God's Word sustains His servants through history. How do they sustain us? First of all, they sustain our joy. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. As as the psalmist is reading the Bible, even though wicked men are out to get Him, he finds supernatural delight and joy in God's Word that keeps his head up, that enables him to keep his head on straight. was talking to the young men from Titus 2, and we were talking about the mature men being the standard of the target you're aiming at to become a man, and there are four virtues, and the first one is um, sober-mindedness, which has got nothing really to do with alcohol. It literally means to keep your head. When all about them are losing theirs and blaming it on you, men are not to be flighty, unstable, or reactive. She's very convicting. Would to be level-headed and calm, under pressure? Uh, and uh, where do you get that level-headedness from? By finding your delight in God's Word and Apart from that, there's no way but out perishing. It also sustains our life. I will never forget your precepts. Why? For by them you've given me life. Life in my soul, life in my mind, life in my being. And he's determined I'm not going to forget your precepts, the nitty gritties of your law, the details matter. As John Rogers said whenever the sheriff said to him, I like you well enough, Mr. Rogers, but I find you very precise. And John Rogers said, well, I serve a very precise God. And these things give me life. Legalism is not being overly concerned with the details. Legalism is adding details to God's law and thinking that thereby um, you can earn God's favor through what you've added. But legalism is not being concerned with the details God himself has laid down. That's the heart and soul of a man of God, or a woman of God. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And then they sustain my joy, they sustain my life, and they sustain my hope. I am yours. Save me. Why? For I have sought your Precepts. Hear the wicked lying in wait to destroy me, and yet he has confidence that there's someone bigger than the wicked who is lying in wait to save him. And he gets that hope by seeking God's precepts, by delving into the Bible and trying to find um, his duty, the will of God for his life, as Jesus said, your food and your drink is to is to do um your will. And then, lastly, they consider that they also sustain my interest. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Everything I study, there's a limit to it. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. It goes on forever. There's no limit to it. I go in and into the Bible, and in and in and in and in and in to the Bible, and I just see more and more and more and more and more and more Wonderful things! It's amazing. I've I've memorized the book of Titus. I've preached it several times in in churches. I've preached it at several conferences, and this time I was studying it and saw something I'd never seen before. That when God speaks to the the man in Titus, um, He says to them, He's speaking about preaching sound doctrine, and He describes the church and the effects of sound doctrine. And He speaks to the older men who to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, hope, and love. Speaks to them first. Then he speaks to the older woman, then he speaks to the younger woman, and then he speaks to the younger man. Interestingly, he doesn't go older man, younger man, older woman, younger woman. He goes older man, older woman, younger woman, and then younger man, as if the men surround the woman in the congregation, because they do. They're the hard exteriors, as it were, to protect the, the fairer, gentler sex. And how important men are in a solid church, and men are produced by solid teaching of solid truth. I've never seen that before. And it's amazing how it just things pop out at you. Or Psalm 23, I was listening to a shepherd, old, old Dr. Macmillan. He's now in glory, but he was preaching in Psalm with the shepherd, but he was, he was a lad, and he's preaching in Psalm 23 in the highland of Scotland, and he talked about the two knots of Psalm 23 that sum up the great blessing of having God as your shepherd. I shall not want, and I shall fear no evil. It's just beautiful. I never saw that before. I shall not want, and I'll fear no evil. And you just study the Word. You go into the Word and in and in and in. And there's a, every other book gets boring. Everything else gets a bit tired and old. But in the Scriptures of God, you just study and you find there's no end to it. It's just, there's just this, there's this limitless, soul-sustaining, life-energizing hope, um, sustaining joy, energizing truth. And so even when the wicked are out to get me, the psalmist says, and out to get me they jolly well are, the wicked have lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. There's a but to end all buts. The wicked are out to get me. And I have no hope, were it not for this book, but I consider these testimonies, and the light comes on." Now, you remember these words are the words of Jesus. Think of Jesus praying this, Father, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in, your, in my affliction. And he prays that for himself, but he also prays that for you, because you're part of Jesus now, Christian. You're in him. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. You can't say that for yourself. Christ can say that for you. I, have, I am yours. Save me, my head. Yes, but save my my head's beyond saving. It's in heaven. But save my body on earth, O Lord. They don't deserve to be saved. They're sinners, the devil says. And Jesus says, Yes, Father, but I have sought your precepts. What a thought of Jesus praying such words always living to make intercession for you, Christian. And so, wherever you look for certainty, the psalmist says, look to God and His Word. It sustains the sphere of history, it it guides the course of history, and it it sustains God's servants in the midst of history, even in the nitty-gritties, when they get nitty and very gritty when the wicked are out to get you. Amen. And who would have thought… A few verses from Psalm 119 would give us such encouragement. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word, O God. We pray this evening that You would speak to us, Lord, and teach us to see beauty and glory in Your Word, and come and comfort Your people gathered here this evening, many of whom are facing great… they're up against it, O God, in many different ways and for many different reasons. And yet, if you are theirs and they are yours, O Lord, you are for them, and who can stand against them? Give us certainty in your Word and fill our hearts with the verities and profundities and certainties of Scripture, and we'll have a foundation on which to walk. For Jesus' sake, amen.